yeah, do you want to just like give an introduction of who you are, your background, and um, just walk through like uh, your journey up until this point? Because you're, then you're going to cover like where you're at now, yeah. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's over great. to you. Yeah. Cool. So, as David already knows, I'm Amanda Branson. Uh, David and I met on my journey while I was working as the sort of head of marketing and chief of staff at an early, very early stage AI tech startup, which was a ton of fun. Um, and it brought me to meet awesome people like David. And um, we were able to work together for some marketing campaigns to get the product in front of people who were looking to improve their communication, which was super cool. And it brought us this friendship which I'm very appreciative of. Um, and yeah, so I, as chief of staff, I was doing a whole lot of stuff. I was running the marketing function, um, helping out a bit on sales, customer support, uh, and then the fun stuff like team culture, planning our offsites, getting the uh, team vibes sort of up and making sure that the team is functioning at a high level. So yeah, but but my journey into that role was was kind of interesting, I think. Um, I started my career in consulting and did that for about four or five years. And I was focused on marketing within, within that sort of huge consulting practice experience. Um, and there were a lot of ups and downs with consulting. I, I realized sort of quickly in, it wasn't the thing I was going to do for the rest of my life, but it did give me some really solid foundations for moving into a chief of staff role. Um, I think it really prepared me well for so much of just operating in the business world, how to um, sort of think about how businesses are structured. It certainly helped with getting those like fundamentals down of professionalism and sort of how to operate uh, sort of, yeah, just as a young professional out in the workplace, yeah. trying to accomplish a lot and make a lot of impact. Um, but yeah, I, I quickly kind of realized I wasn't able to have the impact in consulting that I was really after what, I, what excited me was being more on the ground and getting involved in like the nitty gritty, um, in the day to day for a business that was actually going to make a big impact. Um, you know, when, when you're in consulting, you're sort of a, a very, very small fish in a huge sea and your, your clients are gigantic fortune 500, fortune 100 companies, where it's very hard to um, feel like the impact that you're making is all that relevant to the company in the grand scheme of things. And yeah, how does you move it work? into like, a tiny startup, so different. Yeah, but how, how does it work in like a bigger company? So in consulting, um, our clients would hire, so I worked for Accenture, and our clients would hire Accenture to help them solve a whole host of different business problems that they were encountering and it's truly like the breadth of problems that Accenture and these other huge firms can solve is, is quite large. Um, so I worked on a bunch of marketing related sorts of projects, um, but they also do things like huge technology transformation, updating companies that are sort of still operating in the you know, 1980s um, and bringing them on, into modern day technology. Um, they help with the uh, change management, sort of educating people who work at those companies now. How do you do your job with all this new technology? Um, they do finance projects. They do um, all sorts of different things. And there are different groups or different practices of consultants who work in each of those specialties. So you kind of decide what interests you. You try to get a little bit more involved in projects of that sort. And then those practices are responsible for selling projects into these huge companies. Um, so our clients were some of the biggest companies, all brand names that you would have heard of. Mm. And um, they basically say, hey, we, we think that you have XYZ problems. We've heard you say that you really need to uh, you know, update your technologies so that you can sort of keep up with your competitors. We can bring in a project team for... X amount of money. We'll do it for, uh, you know, a, a certain amount of months. We'll bring in a team of this size with this kind of expertise, and we're going to help you solve all, all your problems. That's sort of the, the, the pitch. Um, now, does it actually mm. operate quite as smoothly as that? No, of course, of course not. Um, there's a funny phrase uh, among consultants that's, 
over promise and under deliver, um, which <laughs> I find um, sometimes does often describe what um, what winds up happening. But yeah, that's sort of the overall structure of how it works when you're working for a big consulting firm. And then obviously moving to um, like a startup, how big was, was Poise like on average? Yeah. So when I joined, the company was, I think we we're about eight people. Um, when I left, it was five and then down to three. So we're talking about, I, I was working at a 500,000 person company mm. and then moving to less than 10. Um, it, it was a huge culture change, um, but I loved that part of it. Like I felt like all the pieces of red tape that were all over the consulting world were completely gone. Um, I felt like I had a lot of flexibility, a lot of creative freedom to experiment and to get my hands dirty. Um, I could actually, you know, mess something up and, you know, actually have some real impact. And as scary as that was, it was also um, really empowering. And I, I, I learned so much more in that role in a year and a half than I think I did in the entire almost five years that I was in consulting because it's so much more, um, it's so much more hands-on. It's so much mm. more on the ground. You talk to customers every day. Um, you work directly with the product team, the design team, the engineering team, um, rather than being so siloed and feeling like you're so separate from some of those other functions, you're right in the, in the thick of it. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine like, cause I, I mean, I've not had, it's a bit different in like sales and recruitment because I've worked at really small, like five people in a room. I've, I, in fact, my first recruitment job was, um, me and the director who also didn't have an experience in like a tiny little room and a printer. That's what we mm. had. Uh, and then I've also worked oh, at, yeah. <laughs> and I've also worked at like, um, you know, enormous sales floors like global multi-site um and we've got like um a legal team with like the legal team alone is like five people six people the marketing team is seven people we've got a team of 100 right. sales people so I, I know what you mean by like red tape like even I, I suppose from your from what you're trying to do it's obviously a very different job but like even from a sales perspective we would speak to the marketing legal teams and whatever to like get something signed off, like say some marketing material that we wanted to send right. or like to advertise a service or something, even though it's not us doing it, we'd be speaking to the, say the marketing team and they'd be like, yeah, we need to wait like seven working days for legal to sign off on that and stuff. Classic. Yep. And, uh, there were just so many more people involved. There's like a very clear chain of approvals in those huge companies. And, you know, those processes are put in place, I guess, to make, you know, things easier, but it, it, it feels like a lot more red tape than it's worth. Um, but granted, like the level of risk at these larger companies, um, with these much larger projects, I guess probably warrants it, but I'm kind of more of the like, Hey, yeah, just roll with it. Just do it now and apologize later. If somebody gets mad, mm -hmm. um, you know, within reason. Yeah. It's, it fascinates me marketing because marketing and sales like they are connected of course and a lot of people struggle to mm -hmm. differentiate what the difference actually is but yeah it it fascinates me because it's um it's such a multifaceted job and you get like different types of marketers now like marketing in 2023 is so different to say marketing 2003 right so oh my gosh yes <laughs> so with with the experience that you've gained over the last you know 18 months or so working within like you know the ai field tech startup you know all the buzzwords that you can think of um what sort of marketing did you guys do then like were you were you in charge of everything or did you have like you know outsource consultancy or like how how did it all work so i'm i'm super interested yeah yeah we were uh we were doing quite a lot of experimentation um, that was one big difference that or sort of culture shock even from consulting to working at a small tech startup is the mentality shift from these like 
very clear processes. We know exactly how to do this kind of project. We've done it, you know, 18 times before. We have these results, so we know it's going to work. When you move into a tiny tech startup, the mentality has to be much more around, we are going to experiment based on our hypotheses. And the goal is to learn something quickly. So if you're going to mm. fail, fail fast. If you're going to succeed, that's awesome. You can do that even a little bit slower, I think, than, than the failures. The failures you kind of want to weed out faster. Um, but so my job basically wound up being a whole lot of experimentation in various marketing channels, which is how we, we came to know each other. Um, at Poised, we were leaning a lot on influencer marketing and uh, sort of creator partnerships in order to get the word out about our product. Um, and I think one of the reasons it worked so well for us is we had a product that was much easier to understand with some sort of visuals, with somebody talking about the benefits of what it would be like to have this little assistant improving your communication alongside mm. you. Um, and so that worked really well as compared to static ads that we were running at the very beginning um, on Instagram, Facebook, even, you know, just things on Twitter. Um, it, it's kind of hard to grasp what the product is without actually seeing sort of like a video demonstration of it. So we wound up leaning in a lot to the influencer marketing area. Um, and I wound up scaling that by quite a lot. Um, we sort of started with zero spend and in influencer. We got up to around like $40,000, $50,000 in spend, um, which was a huge, huge driver of traffic to the product. So yeah. that was sort of the biggest, the biggest area that we focused on. Um, and what we had a lot of other sort of smaller experiments going as well. We were constantly experimenting on our website copy um, to make sure that people understood when they landed on our website, what is this product? And more importantly, what is it going to do for me, the customer? Um, mm. We learned sort of how to speak about the product in a way that resonated with the customers on the website. And then we were able to pull that through to the other channels. So that went into our lifecycle emails where we tried to nurture customers, try to be make them sort of become those ideal customers for you, kind of upselling them on the next package or plan that they should be looking into expanding to their team. Um, and we would take those learnings and we would try to just sort of disperse them into all of the different initiatives that we were working on. Um, so between the year and a half that I was there, that could have been influencer. That was some SEO blog content. That was Facebook, Instagram ads. That was uh, some organic TikTok, um, some Spark ads on TikTok. I don't even know if they still call them that. They did, they did when I was running them. Um, and it's trying to sort of bring that cohesive understanding between all the channels, which I think is fairly easy when you're a team of, of one, basically. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's a little bit harder when you're uh, bringing others into the mix who are running each of these different channels. But our goal with each of those channels was let's run this fairly, you know, reasonably well thought out experiment. Um, we didn't sort of overthink things before we went in and started an experiment, but you know, we went in with a clear hypothesis about why we thought it was important to try, um, a couple of questions that we wanted to get answered through experimenting with that channel, and um, also a lens of, if this experiment works, would we be able to scale this channel up? And would this be a sustainable channel for our business to keep growing? So that was majority of the marketing work that we did. And then we could talk all about sales as well. Um, but that all led to then developing this qualified customer base of people who were potential customers as individuals and then even sales prospects. So if you want to chat about the differences, I'm happy to do that as well. I think it is a little bit harder to see the differences at small companies as compared to large companies where marketing and sales are like two very, very separate entities. I think it's more common now that um, especially products, tech products in the AI space and similar are using a product led sales motion, which starts with marketing and ends with hopefully a sale mm. um, to develop customers. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. And it's like, I think the reason I find it so interesting personally is because I set up my business a year, just over a year ago now. 
And I very quickly realized that I was like, I actually have no idea how to market. Like I know how to sell, yeah. but marketing is like a completely different, like even just down to how to write copy, that sort of thing. So I started yeah. reading, um, who did I read? I've got Seth Godin's book there. Um, nice. And uh, there's a book called One Page Marketing that I read. So I read a couple of things, but it was, yeah, super interesting. And, and, and like I said, it's, there's so many different ways to market now um so i've got quite a few questions already to be honest but with your yeah. experience at poise especially with like the influencer marketing side of things so like the first few like hurdles you you had to overcome like were the founders already on board of influencer marketing or is that something you had to like um did you have to convince them of the benefits because it's very it's a very weird world influencer marketing isn't it it is. It is. Um, surprisingly, they were on board. I'd say one of them was on board. The other two were pending the results of the experiments. Mm. And I think the mentality there was all about running with different experiments. If you have a strong hypothesis or even a strong enough gut feeling that it's worth trying. Um, I think where the divide eventually came about how well was it working was one of the founders was excited by the increase in traffic, the number of signups we were getting. And we had a, a, a free product at the time as well. So you could sign up for the free product and then we would try to upsell you through our lifecycle emails. Um, and then the other founders, on the other hand, were saying, yeah, it's great. We're getting all these free signups, but we're not really seeing the conversion to paying accounts on the product that we would need. So is it really worth all this spend on marketing and specifically influencer? Because yeah. that was our sort of biggest channel when, when we were at the peak. If we're not going to be able to then actually convert all of those leads that we've generated. So it wasn't as much of a conversation of like, is it is it worth trying this channel at all? It was are we getting the right kinds of leads to the product from this influencer marketing? Can we get more targeted, more specific, work with the right people who have the right kind of audience to bring in people who were really passionate about improving themselves as speakers? Yeah. So how do you, so when you're kicking off like an influencer campaign, so say, say for example, someone's listening and they've just got their startup. And they've been thinking about doing influencer marketing, but they don't know. They don't. They don't know where to start. Like, do I go for big accounts? Do I go for smaller accounts? Um, how do yeah. I decide how much to pay? And I suppose the other thing. I think one of the the main questions that I've seen, and it's a very much. It seems to be like this is what I find weird about the market. And you know, since Instagram blew up years back, um, it's very much like lick your finger and 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 see which way the wind's blowing and then that's a good campaign that's a bad <laughs> campaign right so um yeah so so i suppose start there what makes a good campaign how how can you even judge it was successful is, is it views is it engagement on the video is it like people actually clicking through because i suppose as well like um have you read uh shoe dog night the nike um founder phil knight it's awesome book should read it it's really it. cool really really cool um but basically he's uh you know considering how amazing nike's marketing is they're like one of the best at doing it right um in the yeah. book he actually says he he is this is like the 70s and the marketing team were like telling him you know we spent you know millions on marketing and we've got x amount of views and whatever and he's like yeah but how many sales and they were like saying to him mm -hmm. no but it's really good brand awareness because more people are aware of our brand and he was like i don't care about that and he's still never bought into it to this day like he's still never bought into like um you know the whole what is uh, you'll know more about this than me but the whole like you need to see a brand nine times or whatever before you purchase so mm -hmm. yeah i think that's true what how would you assess uh, an influencer campaign and what does that success look like to, to you? Yeah, it's a great question. So if I were just getting started with influencer marketing at a new startup, I would start even before we think about the influencer campaigns themselves. I think the success of influencer marketing is dependent on how well that influencer 
targets your ideal customer profile. So that's often referred to as ICP. I don't like throwing around acronyms that people might not know um, without explaining them. I, I feel it's quite isolating. Um, so the ideal customer profile needs to be nailed down with the co-founders, with the marketing team, depending on how big this company is, um, before you go out into the influencer world and start looking for partnerships. So I would have a conversation, maybe even do an hour or two, sort of like almost like a workshop style with the with the team to talk about what is the positioning and the messaging for this product before we go out and show it to the world. The positioning gets at what is the unique problem that this product can solve and who does it solve it for? So you need to know that before you go find influencers. Excuse me. And the messaging piece is now given, we know who the target audience is. We know the problem or set of problems we're trying to solve. How do we spin that in a way that's going to be compelling to somebody that's seeing this product for the first time? It has to be quite centered on the customer. I think often brands get caught up, especially founder-led companies, they get caught up in thinking about everything that they've built, how great this product is, all the features it has. And so they start leading with like, here's everything it can do. But a customer is like, I'm just coming to this for the first time. I don't need to know everything about what your product does. What is it going to do for me? Like, what is the outcome that I can expect? If Amanda uses this product today, how is she going to be different than yesterday? So I would sit down and have those conversations first. And that might need to be a sort of series of conversations before you get to the answer that feels at least, you know, 85 to 90% right. Then once you have that, and you know who the target audience is, and you know what you have to say to them, that's when you should go out and look for influencers. And at that point, what I was doing was I was looking for people who were talking about the topics that would be interesting to our ideal customer profile. I was thinking about who is actually in our ideal customer profile. Are there any influencers like that? So for example, one of our target uh audiences was actually consultants because so much of their work is about how they present themselves, how they come across professionally. So we worked with a handful of upcoming consultants um, who were also doing content creation on the side. And those campaigns worked really well because inherently, you know that their audience is likely interested in what it is that they talk about professionally. They're often posting videos about what it's like to be a day in their life at work. They're talking about the skills you need. They're talking about how to get a promotion. Um, you know, they're talking about all these related topics. So I think that that fit with uh, sort of what your ICP cares about is the first step. And then once you've got a laundry list of all of those people, you'll have like a huge spreadsheet probably and lots of names, lots of accounts, um, lots of opportunities. Then you need to think about the more tactical things about what's your budget looking like? How much money are you comfortable spending in this experimentation phase? I would say start cheaper. You can always scale up. Um, and I found that working with the creators who were sort of more up and coming, not already having a huge audience, um, not already super set in their ways, they were much more willing to um, like partner instead of just saying like, hey, I'd like you to make a video. Please say X, Y, Z. Uh, you have to mm. mention these three things. Other than that, you know, go and do what you want. They were like, oh, I want to try this product. Like, I really like this about it. I think my audience would really find this valuable. I'm going to talk about it in, you know, for interviews. They were much, much more um, personally invested in the product. Um, and that made for a better partnership overall. You know, it's not at the end of the day, like it's not just about the videos. It's not just about the content they're putting out. That is certainly a huge piece of it. Um, but these people are representing your brand. These people are folks you're going to work with and maybe, you know, have a long-term relationship with. And um, thinking about those people who can serve as those like evangelists or um, ambassadors for the brand, I think is is a great place to start. Um, and then your last question was all about payment and everything. And I don't want to go into like the super nitty gritty details, but um, what I will say is after you kind of experiment, you sort of start start low, sort of like send out some proposed rates and say, hey, yeah, we're looking to pay around this much um, and you sort of see where you land. Um, you can eventually develop like a rough formula. It's not it, it, like this. It's really not a, a cut and dry kind of thing. 
but you'll know like, oh yeah, for that campaign, I paid X amount of dollars per, uh, it got, you know, this many views and we didn't really get too many signups from that. So I think we need to look at spending less for someone who has less views or like, okay, you know, we can actually spend, you know, a couple cents per view more. Um, cause we realized that campaign was super efficient and we'd like to be able to scale and work with some bigger influencers. So in a nutshell, that is what I would advise about influencer marketing. Um, I think it really is the first step is the most important. It's nailing who you want to talk to, what you're going to say, and then the rest will come. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear that a lot. Cause I had, um, I've had a couple of copywriters, um, on this podcast. So there's a guy called Dave Harland, um, really funny follow uh on linkedin yeah. if, you, if you don't follow him he he does these really funny things right i'll send you some stuff afterwards but um he uh he does this thing called scam the scammers and what he does <laughs> That's so awesome. he engage, you know like you know you get like these um well they're either it's either a fake profile run by some outsourced team on the other side of the world or um it's a bot or like semi-bot and yeah. Uh, what he does is he engages with bots because then he gets more bots add him because it must be on like some sort of <laughs> database or something. Yeah, yeah. And then he just has these. Um... In fact, no, they are they are real people. They are real people. Maybe the initial outreach is bots, but anyway, it's really funny because um, he'll like it. Just it's just ludicrous, and he'll they'll try and sell him like forex um, trading or some weird stuff like this, and he'll just take them down this rabbit hole to the point where some of them are just like fuck you you're wasting my time like that they're, they're yeah it's like him, what do you like, think you're doing yeah exactly <laughs> I love it's, it. it's really funny really fucking funny but um just market the marketer but yeah anyway my point was that um i remember he did a post about people overcomplicating like marketing and copywriting and mm-hmm. um i can't remember what he was talking he was arguing against it might have been like chat GPT actually, maybe because he's quite anti chat GPT, which we'll get onto mm. later. But, um, he was saying how like people just have stopped picking up the phone to their like ICPs and mm. just asking them, what are your problems? And you know, yes. how can we solve them? Yes. hundred percent. We would not cold call people for that, but we would have regular user interviews. So we Mm. would have an email campaign that was just on a trip and it would go out to folks after they spent a certain amount of time on the product or even if they had signed up and then abandoned. Um, And it just asks them to set up a quick call with one of us on the team. And then we would go through and we would just get to know them, sort of what's their perspective? Why are they coming to improve their communication with our product? Um, And then we would ask them sort of whatever the pressing questions were. We had some uh, like a couple of, you know, stock questions that we asked everybody And then we would use it as an opportunity to just ask the questions that were coming up in our like weekly conversations as a team, the things we were trying to solve, um, exactly what you said. It's like, what are your problems? And if this product could solve X, Y, Z, like, what is that thing that would change your life that would, you know, make this worthwhile for you? And I do think Mm. that's really important to do on an ongoing basis so that you continue to hear from the real people who are using and loving your product. Um, because often marketers tend to, yeah, they ch- tend to overcomplicate things, get into that mindset where they have to say all these fancy things. But really what you need to do is put yourself in the customer's shoes. If you are looking for something to improve your communication, what, why is that relevant to you? What kind of impact will that have on your career? You need to think about those things because that's what your customer actually cares about when they come to your product. They don't care that it works with Zoom and Google Meet and all this stuff. Like you're, you're leading with the wrong things. Um, so I totally, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. This, this um, is a, another thing that I, because um, I never had to worry about it too much, obviously when I was working for other people, but when I set up my business, it's like, it's such a different perspective because it's so easy to get, fall into that trap of just talking about the products and the features, right? This is what it does. It is. It's like, okay, cool. But why like what problem is this solving and the yeah. amount of um i ask people that all the time now like salespeople, recruiters um i say well, what what problem does your product solve because we need to know that to you know create good 
sales scripts and emails and stuff. And it's so right. funny, like the amount of time you say, or even like directors, they're like, what problem does your product solve? And they're like, oh, it does this. It's like, no, I'm not asking what it does. I'm, I'm saying what problem yes. does it solve? And uh, exactly. a lot of people just- They've lost they, touch with that. Mm, exactly, exactly. And it's so important. Um, yeah. With like, so what's your opinion? Because you, you touched on it a little bit there. So what's your opinion on- like the automation boom. So uh, like email sequencing is just exploded this year. And, yeah. you know, combined with chat GPT, people being able to write, in my opinion, extremely low quality, but very quick uh, content yeah. and, um, and marketing stuff. And also because of this, because of automation becoming so easy and cheap and scalable, people are now getting more like, messages and emails and linkedin dms than ever to the point where um it's it's almost becoming like impossible to like get even getting people's get, like, get out of people's spam boxes right so what where do you feel like marketing's gonna go over the next sort of like couple of years with chat gpt and the evolution of that with automation yeah it's an incredible tool we we know how much it can do I think there's also some dangers with over-relying on GPT. Um, it's funny. We were just talking about this at a uh, marketing and sales leaders conference that I was at uh, just a week ago. And what the sort of leaders at the, the discussion table landed on was it's a great tool for overcoming that like blank page problem when you're starting something, you're starting a blog post or you're starting an email sequence and you're just like, I don't even know where to start. I need a little bit of organization. I need like a little bit of a structure to what I'm doing. And I think getting that from GPT is incredibly helpful. It's giving you a fairly standardized structure for an email sequence that is, uh, it probably works decently well as GPT is pulling from Basically, what is most expected out on the internet right now? So it's it's not processing or thinking for itself. It's pulling mm. from um, a database, a huge database of things that have already been, been written by other people and pulling out like a summary of what could be most expected in an email campaign where your goal is to convert customers. Um, so it's in no way revolutionary. It's in no way like, super, super customized, but it does give you a basis. And if you're brand new at something, I think it's a great tool to just help you get started. Um, but I think it's only going to get you over that blank page problem and you shouldn't rely on it for much, much else. Um, my fear as a marketer is that with GPT helping so many current marketers and GPT being a tool that therefore encourages other people to get into this content game with lots and lots of content already out on the internet. Now more and more people are seeing themselves as potential content writers because it's so mm -hmm. much easier. If everybody's using GPT to write content, eventually all the content I think is just going to go like this. It's all going to start converging and sounding the same because it's written by the same program and yeah then all the content on the internet that GPT is learning from also sounds like that. So I think actually in the sort of future of marketing that includes GPT technology, the content writers who actually know how to connect with their audience, who know what their audience's main pains are, who um, are sort of empathetic in their approach, who um, care to be curious and understanding of their customers, are actually going to the be the people and the campaigns that stand out as compared to all of this sort of stock content that's going to wind up out there in the ether. What do you think? Yeah. I'm curious to know your perspective as well. Well, you make a good point because, you know, if, if everyone started mainly using ChatGPT and that was successful, or it doesn't even need to be successful if it's just the 
what is the bulk of the content out there. Yeah. As you make content again in, say you made content today and then you made content in three years to that point, like, and everyone's just using chat GPT. Chat GPT is basically pulling chat GPT's previous work into the, into the, into the funnel. Right. It's not even human um, anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's an interesting point. And this is why it's so, I'm so curious to see where it's going to go. What do I think of it? Well, what in terms of marketing or just sort of like where it's going generally? Yeah. Where it's going to go generally. Hmm. So I've listened to quite a lot because because I'm I think I mentioned to you off the off the recording. Um, I'm a I listen to like Joe Rogan. Like I'm one of those sados that listens to the entire three hour episode. Big Joe Rogan fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. My fiance thinks I'm weird because I will literally listen to. She's like, probably my, right. My, my, my um like all my friends are like they listen to the clips but they won't listen to the entire three hour episode but i do and he has like quite a lot of ai experts on so he had um mm. the the founder of open ai on uh, a few weeks ago who obviously they created chat gpt and it was really interesting for to hear him talk about it and there's the whole thing about you know could it become sentient is it sentient already would it tell us if it was sentient I mean, if I was, mm. if I was sentient, I wouldn't tell you I've become sentient for sure. And not if you were a computer obviously program. There's like, <laughs> it, yeah, it's like it's it's a weird one, and um, it feels like we're. Joe Rogan says quite a lot. He feels like we're like the last humans who aren't. Um, we're like the last of the Mohicans, so we're mm. like the last sort of generations where we're not augmented like te- techno- technologically we've not got implants we're not like merging with ai though we sort of are actually Almost. like we, we yeah we, we we sort of are i mean you think about it like everything we do is on our smartphones i mean we keep mm-hmm. it in our pocket all day long and it's basically i mean have you ever gone like a month without a smartphone attached yeah. You know, it's funny. It's funny that you talk about this topic because, um, no, I haven't. I don't know if I would live. I don't, I'm not sure. But I, you told me that you did an experiment accidentally because you had to send your phone out for service or something. Um, and you didn't have it for a month. And I was like, wow, I, I, I wonder if I could do that. Um, which I don't think so. Um, so much of, you know, business happens on the phone. Um, so I, I'm not quite sure I could live without it. But you also gave me another amazing tip that I've been trying. And that was if you put your phone in black and white, that it'll help you sort of uh, curb your social media addiction. That decreased my screen time by 30% since the last time that we spoke. I was like, this is this is really effective. And as a little tidbit, I think I'm an iPhone user. I I think you're you're on Android, right? Um, Yeah. But uh, on iPhone, I found out there's a way you can leave your phone in color. But then you can create an automation via the iPhone shortcuts that you right. can just put your phone in black and white when you open any social media accounts. So I just did that the other day and I'm loving it because it was really struggling to like, I couldn't use the maps. I couldn't like drive anywhere and not see the blue line on, on the yeah. um, navigation, but so good for social media. I'm like so thrilled you gave me that tip. That is very interesting. I never, I didn't know you could do that. So anyone watching, so if I... You've got it on color, and if you hold these two or these two buttons on top on your screen, if you hold it, it will go black and white, and it makes it look so boring. If you can so see that, so boring. It's so boring. So like, because there's not a hint of color. It's not like the even like the Nokia thirty tens we used to have in the early two thousands. There was like some sort of green <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But that is just dull, and you don't want to look straight at up it. black and white. No, yes. I really don't, and I found it's been super helpful. But it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Like, how often are you actually using your phone when you want to use your phone? Or are you actually just wasting your life? Oh, 100%. And I I feel like I would even argue against what you just said, that we're like the last generation that's not technologically augmented. I mean, our phones might, might as well be attached to us via some, like, implant device or something. I mean, how often do you leave the house and your phone's not in your hand? Um. It's, yeah, it's poisonous, but uh, I am trying to be more mindful of it, more conscious of it, um, so that I'm actually using it for what I need and not just overusing it to numb my brain. 
Yeah, well, I've, I've, I sort of go back and forth on this around like it's a weekly discussion that I'm pretty sure yeah. um, my fiance is just bored of hearing because like every other week I'm like, right, I'm gonna cut my phone uses down, and then I'll do it, and then I'll like have a week where it's really bad and it's up, and then obviously you're addicted then. So it's you're like dieting, and- right? You're like, I'm going to eat vegetables yeah. this week and I'm not going to eat any sugar. And then you absolutely just like completely binge and <laughs> just go right back. Yeah, it's it is a weird one. And like with AI and stuff, it's it's going to be interesting to see like how it evolves. Like for me as well. So I don't know if you've seen um, the Tesla cold call. Um, it's called no. like air. So so basically, I can't remember what it's called. It's it's. Um, it's like Tesla cold call air, but there's this software. I think it's I think it's by Tesla or uh, maybe just something Tesla use. But it's um, an AI bot calls someone, a uh, cold calls them, and books a meeting. Um, not meeting, like books a test drive with the Tesla. Wow! So that's going to be interesting, but I don't think I can't that would be a great see software as like a virtual assistant i would love that yeah well i i just can't see like i think there's too many nuances with human communication so i can't see ai at least in the next five years you know writing comedy because obviously you know there's the whole actors strike that has has been happening the screen actors skilled strike um because obviously everyone's super scared of like chat gpt taking over rice's jobs um, I mean Bruce Willis because he's like you know on on um he's like very ill and he's actually signed away his rights his visual rights so you can now make a movie with Bruce Willis in it even though it's not oh. Bruce Willis so because you know he got paid really... money to it. Not yeah, this is the with thing. those AI deep fakes freaks me out. Ha- have you um have you ever seen Bojack Horseman the animation? No, I haven't. It's so good. It's obviously I'm a big fan, but tell me, um, yeah, clearly, it's uh, so there's an episode in that. It's it's a little bit ahead of its time um, because it was like 2014, 2015 when this episode came out. But um, Bojack in the Bojack's like an alcoholic um, Hollywood actor. Basically, he's he's a horse, but I won't get into that. And um, basically, there's a there's a moment in the series when he's like. He's like goes on a drug binge for like a week or something, I think, and he's like unavailable. Uh, eventually, he he comes back, he recovers, he comes back on set, and he's like, "Cool, ready to film." And they're like, "Oh, don't worry about it. We don't need you anymore." And he's like, "What do you mean?" It was like, "Oh, we just used AI. Like, we actually we filmed oh the whole gosh. movie with AI because we scanned your face." And that's at the really happening now. Thing. Yeah, this is the thing. So it's going to be super it's interesting wild, right? how, how that affects, like, you know, marketing and sales and you know content creation i don't know because i mean even if you just look on tiktok you'll know this like the filters and stuff you can do and um unbelievable i mean you can like i think it's on like canva uh or yeah pretty something canva or something like that you can actually like just type in something and it will create a video based on what you yeah Yeah, there's image there's video Last week or two weeks ago, I, I went to a really funny event uh, here in New York City. It was part of the startup, like New York City Tech Week events. And it was a tech founder pitch and roast. So five, six founders got up, pitched their companies, and a panel of comedians roasted the shit out of them. It was That's it was good. honestly, it was hilarious, but it was in good spirits. Um, and one of the founders um, was an AI photo development company. And his whole pitch was around how he wasn't getting any Tinder dates with his photos. And he created this app so that he could have this AI tool scan his body and create all these different visuals of him in different uh, environments and scenarios. I mean, he came out looking like one of the Backstreet Boys. Um, And so there's like so many applications. You see all those um, like AI professional headshots as well. and a lot of them are quite shit, but uh, some of them are, are are pretty decent. And I think a lot of the untrained eye probably won't won't notice. 
I think we're in we're in big trouble though when AI figures out how to properly sketch hands because that's one thing they still have not <laughs> at Ooh. all been able to do well. All the fingers always look messed up. They don't have enough fingers on their hands. It's, it's kind of funny. Um, but yeah, there are there are so many instances where AI can be used to create fake, you know, something that's not reality. And I think that's exciting if it's used in the right ways. But it's also scary if we stop being able to discern the difference and we're not able to tell what is real from what is fake. And that that's already even happening um, with some of these AI deep fakes. It's, it, it's a violation of some people's character and privacy to have these videos made of them without their consent. So we could go on forever about this, David, I'm sure. Um, but I think we need to be careful and the people who are creating uh, AI tools just need to always be thinking about it from an ethical lens, because even if the founders of these companies are with good intent, users of these apps are not always the same. Um, people find ways to use things outside of the way they're intended. And if we're not thinking ahead about that, I think we could get into danger for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's weird as well because we're like in the eye of the storm. The way I look at it is like, you know, when you're on Wikipedia and you're like looking at, I don't know, a world war or a historical event or whatever. Like COVID, COVID is a good example. Like you'll, you'll, you'll look at that and, and you'll be reading through it and you'll be like, wow, I wonder what it was like to live through that time. <laughs> And it's like, but when you're in my it, dog it's just make... yeah, it's cool. Um, Sorry, when my dog you're like... just made an appearance in the back. <laughs> yeah, we are living through it. I I agree. It's it is really interesting time to be coming up as sort of a young professional right now. I think and navigating sort of what is our role um, in interacting with AI. It's something we are going to have to be more intentional about than people I think are planning for right now. Hmm. Yeah, there's like, have you seen like prompt engineers as well? Like chat GPT prompt mm -hmm. engineers is a job now. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny when those job descriptions are like, it needs four years of, of experience. I'm like, four years of experience? GPT came out a year ago. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. Who had four years of experience before the product even surfaced? I don't know. But uh, job descriptions going to be job descriptions. What can I say? Yeah, for sure, for sure. It's um, no, it's, yeah. it's gonna be it's gonna be super interesting, and I think I th I personally think what's gonna happen. So using the um, using the the Tesla AI cold call thing as an example. So a lot of people were saying, you know, salespeople are gonna be out of a job. You know, we won't need you guys in three years, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what I think is gonna happen is, as with everything, so it's cool now, but it's not very effective. The more effective it gets, the more real it gets, there will probably likely be like legislations and regulations coming yes. into play. So then Let's hope. what will happen is when an AI person calls you, they'll have to say, hey, Amanda, just to let you know, because I have to before we kick things off, um, I'm actually a robot. Um, I'm not a real person. I'm a computer software, just to let you know. Anyway, how was your day? Immediately, so so as you know, sales and marketing people like they buy of emotion and reason with logic right we're very emotional beings and that human to human human to human connection is very very important in terms of like marketing and sales so when someone calls you like cole calls you and you know they're a real person you obviously you assume they are like even if you want to hang up you might listen to them anyway just because like you feel guilty or you know you feel embarrassed or you feel bad for them whatever and that might you know that that connection might end up leading to a sale or a meeting or whatever whereas if you remove that completely there's no human on the other end of the of the of the email or the, on the other end of the call suddenly you just don't care like they don't have emotions you know so you'll hang up no problem like i might not hang on a hang up on a real salesperson but i will easily hang up on a robot bang you know no problem of course. No, no guilt no we all do. Same with marketing, like I'll ignore your email, whatever, if I know it's automated. And that line's getting blurred so much now, um, already obviously with emails. But now it's funny, it's gone the other way, don't you think, that um, you assume everything's AI now, every message you get. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's really interesting that you bring up this point about sales and it being impersonal with AI. I, I definitely agree with that. Um, and I think one of the big differentiators between marketing and sales is that marketing is, for the most part, a one-way conversation. Marketing is the brand putting out something into the ether to you know, increase their brand awareness, to let customers know that this product is out there, to sort of get people interested in that space. Sales is a two-way conversation, and it's very much about the salesperson needing to lead with that curiosity and that empathy for the customer because people do buy with their emotions and people aren't buying stuff because of XYZ features that some AI told it that it had. They're buying things because it solves a problem that they have personally felt that is very painful. It wastes their time. It you know causes them issues. And I, I don't know whether AI will be able to get to that point or not where it could effectively engage in a two-way conversation that feels empathetic and um, appropriately responds to, you know, someone's actual, uh, like, issues and perceived, um, you know, problems. I think once it can do that, we may be uh, sort of headed the direction where AI can do more sales. But I think my stance, at least for now, because the world changes like that. And I think we have to adapt along with it. But my perspective for now is AI can do a lot of the um, sort of upfront uh, tactical work that is often tedious. And it's often the stuff that bogs great marketers or great salespeople down. Um, it can help you to get that, you know, started campaign or started idea for a blog post. And then the human aspect of it needs to come. You need to still be behind that call. You need to be writing the rest of that email. You need to be thinking about what the customer is thinking or feeling when they're interacting with you. Um, and until we get to that point where AI can actually do that, I don't think it's going to eliminate all sales jobs or um, sort of customer facing roles. Yeah. That's where I'm at. So. Because when you when you started at Poised, so you've gone into this like you know very senior role coming out from massive consultancy. Your the whole marketing outreach is sitting on your shoulders, right? So you've obviously had to, and 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 you must have joined around the same time that ChatGPT came out. I guess it must have been. I joined in April of 2022, so it was even a little bit before. Yeah, so yeah, so you're getting your feet under the table, and then ChatGPT comes out, and there's there's this explosion. So yep. you've sort of been running. Oh, you've sort of been running alongside it. Um, what? Because what I find, what I'm really curious to see is like it feels like with marketing and sales, there's been this explosion, especially this year, and then you've got the automation sequencing and all this stuff like apollo io and all this all this stuff that everyone's aware of and it's pumping yeah. out more emails than ever and then the content's automatically created and you can even like write an email and then have it like optimized by ai within the app now it's all becoming seamless right which means people are sending out more emails than ever they're getting out more content than ever um and if it wasn't saturated already it's super saturated now so how what can companies How do you cut through do? the noise? Yeah, like how how do you do that? Because the volume is so much higher. For me, it, it almost seems like you've just got to go do something completely different. Like just whatever we've been doing for the last few years that's been working, you almost have to, I don't know, do you think things are going to have to be flipped on their head because the volume's like, or do you have to go a completely different channel? Is, is email going to die for a while? I don't know. Um, I, okay. I have a couple of, couple of thoughts. I think as it relates to the freaking overload of emails that people get these days, I think email marketing can and is still very effective if you do it in the way that your customers want to receive it. 
So there's some AI tools that I'd signed up for and I would get an email a day from their founder, right? An AI written email from the founder talking about some benefit of the product, some feature. And eventually I just stopped. I just stopped opening them. You know, the first, maybe the first three or the first couple I was like interested in. And then after I just couldn't stand it anymore. So I just started ignoring them. So I think as a marketer, um, you need to experiment with different lengths of campaigns. You need to have one that's super short. Um, it just gets down to, you know, the three, top three things and, you know, don't, don't go overboard. Just end it there and see how the click-through rate is. See how your conversion rates are through that short campaign. Do a longer one. Do a campaign with six or seven or eight emails and see where people start to drop off. Because you can see in any of these uh, platforms that you use, customer.io or HubSpot or fancy CRM tools, you can see uh, the drop-off rates at each step in the campaign. So I think you need to learn. It's not just one email. Did it hit or did it not hit? But it's how did this entire campaign resonate with a customer? And um, that'll tell you what your sweet spot is for your particular brand, how often customers want to hear from you um, and how uh, often it is appropriate to reach out to them. Um, second thing for email in particular is more personalization. So I think the issue with these AI tools is that a lot of the content feels very like stock. It's kind of generic, you know, it's, it, it's not, it's not always bad, um, but it doesn't get in on those individual pain points that customers have. It doesn't really tie back to their emotions as much as a, a human being could, could write. So I think making those campaigns more personalized, depending on what you know about your customers, are they in specific job roles or did they select a certain question on the, on the onboarding survey that said, I really want to focus on this. This is the reason I am coming to this product. So email them about that and don't email them about all the other stuff. They don't want to hear it. So thinking about what the customer actually values from your product and don't overload them with a bunch of crap. That's not that. Mm. So that's email. And then I think the content world is, I see shifts where content from brands is not necessarily doing as well as content from individual people. I think companies need to think more about having a face of their brand. People want to follow people. They don't want to follow companies. So if the founder yeah. is willing to put themselves out there and have a presence on LinkedIn or on Twitter or wherever the right platform is for their, for their um, customer base, building that relationship is a lot easier when it's between people and not person to this wall company, companies trying to sell me. Instead, a founder that has a point of view, that has interesting things to say about the space that they're in, those are the people that are being followed right now. There's like all these newsletters, interesting AI tools. There's Zane Khan has an amazing newsletter um, on AI. And people want to follow those people. They don't want to follow the, you know, poised newsletter for AI or great communication. So I would encourage people to start surfacing from behind their products and to represent their point of view publicly so that people can get to know who this is built by and what they're all about. Because people are much more willing to buy from people that they know and they trust. So I think those are some of the sort of three key areas that I would say we need to focus on with the rise of all this AI driven content. And it's really about having um, a more personal approach and doing it in the way that your customers will want to receive it, not just the way that the brand manager decides we want to blast out <laughs> all about this product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I think you made a really good point there, actually, how you need to have a face of the, of the brand. And I, I read a statistic, um, I think it was last year, about like personal branding on LinkedIn and how founders tend to have so much more engagement so with much audience more. than their like employees, which is why it's such a shame when you see founders who don't post. Uh, I've got I've got like mates who run like, you know, recruitment agencies and stuff. And uh the amount of conversations I have with them where I'm like you want to build your brand, you've got your employees or you're investing in like, you know, social um media training and you've got your employees like posting or trying to encourage your employees to post but you're not posting yourself and you are yeah. like 
if you get engagement, like that would build the brand up for everyone. So they would then trust your consultants a bit more because they work for you because they know you. And I think you've actually, I think that's a really good, um, really good point because especially like on LinkedIn as well, uh, forget about YouTube and stun TikTok, but like even on LinkedIn, I think it's only like one or 2% of like all users post at all. So having your founder actual actually post about stuff and like you said actually have an opinion as well like not just copy and paste the company's stuff and put it on their page actually talk about stuff yeah you need to uh build in public as as they have sort of coined it you need to talk to your audience about what you're building why you're building it what problems it's solving who it's for um how it's going to change their lives those are the things that people will find interesting they're not going to find some stock image and like a you know some catchy two sentence messaging on your company page, all that compelling. I I guarantee that. So I agree. I uh, also am shocked to hear that that stat, only 1% of people on LinkedIn are actually posting because I think often it feels like everyone's posting. Everyone is writing on LinkedIn. It feels like there's so much noise. Um, But it's, it's good to put that back into perspective. And to stand out, I think it is important for founders or anyone who is building their own brand, their own company, people need to know what you stand for, why you're building the thing that you're building, how it's personally affected you. Um, Those are the stories that people care about and the reasons eventually that people will buy. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, um, I mean, on the, on the, on the LinkedIn thing, yeah, it is something like, you know, people might post like occasionally, but it's not like posting content regularly. Like, someone might post twice and then not post for a month sort of thing. And um, right. just by like getting involved, you are already ahead of everyone. Even if your engagement is terrible, like you are still getting more impressions than dead accounts. Right. So there's that. But I think just to like, to wrap this up, I think what would be really interesting is if any like new tech startup founders are listening what what like free tips would you would you give them from a marketing perspective what what's the first three things you would do if you were to go in and like you know work on a consultancy basis with a tech startup yeah well i love this question um because i am also a freelance marketing consultant for startups and really early stage startups is what gets me excited it gets me out of bed in the morning um so thanks for plugging that um <laughs> If I were coming into a company tomorrow and I had to start making an impact right away, um, here's a a couple of things that I would do. I think if you are the marketing leader at that company, I think it's a a little bit different. So as a consultant, maybe I'd do some different things. As the actual marketing leader at that company, I would try to be a sponge. Um, Those first couple of weeks are the sort of um, time when you feel the least, maybe let let me, let me rephrase that. Um, ask your stupid questions while you still feel like you can, you know, use those initial couple of weeks to just be a sponge and soak it all up while you don't feel bad or behind for asking those things. Um, and try to, uh, get as much of a deep dive as you can on all of the marketing initiatives that are currently running. So I would say spend a couple of days on each channel, um, learn what's been tried, uh, what kind of money has been spent in each of those channels. Were there any sort of uh, outcomes or results that you can look at to say, yeah, okay, I think this is a channel that has more potential. This seems like something we should scrap and and we should dedicate our resources elsewhere. Um, So kind of go through, do that audit. You can do that in partnership with the founders. Um, and then I think often founders get so tied up in what we talked about before, explaining the product, talking about the features, they sometimes lose sight of their ideal customers. Um, and I think as an outside perspective, that's so valuable because you can almost start over and you don't have all the same biases as the founders that have been working on this project for two, three, five years. Um, so really go back. Do an audit of the uh, ideal customer profile. See if you feel like you're targeting the right people then in each of the channels that you're marketing in. If you decided, um, you know, your ICP is consultants, 
Um, is it, you know, really the best to be uh, running Facebook ads to stay at home moms? You know, like make sure that the channels and the ads that you're running actually tie back well to that ICP. Yeah. Um, and I think personally, also something I would do if I were coming in tomorrow um, is I would write a clear experimentation plan and a goal for each of my proposed experiments. This helps founders visualize things a lot better than just sort of having a chat about it, but really like write out in a document. Here's five experiments I wanna propose. Here's my main hypothesis for each one. These are the two or three questions that I want to get answered by the end of the experiment. And um, you can also detail out some of the logistical things like the amount you wanna spend. Um, you also wanna come with a targeted outcome or a targeted number of conversions or sort of successes from each of those experiments. Um, and that'll help you justify the amount that you want to spend for each of those channels as well. So I'm trying to keep it to three. Um, I think that's approximately three. And um, yeah, I think also like at these smaller companies, I think it's also incredibly important to try to get to know the members of all the cross-functional teams because it's fairly easy to do so. And working with these people, transferring learnings, it's so much easier when you have a relationship with them already. Um, when, you know, the answer to your question or a buddy to sort of brainstorm uh, with the perspective of a different part of the business is just like one Slack message away or, or one Zoom call away. So I think laying that foundation just helps solve all those other problems a lot easier. Awesome. That's a, a very detailed answer. Hopefully a lot of people will take a lot of value from that. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. It's a bit long winded. Um, <laughs> but this has been such a fun conversation. I'm really, uh, I'm really thrilled you asked me to come on the show. Um, and, uh, it was a pleasure getting to work with you as well. So I'm glad that it resulted in, uh, this sort of outside friendship. Yeah. And no, that's awesome. No, it's been, it's been a really interesting conversation. Like I said, it's, uh, like marketing is, is, is so fascinating to me, um, learning about it this year and just how different it is to sales. Um, and I think it's a, something that, a lot of people get awfully wrong so there's a lot of people that can that can learn from this but they no, do. thank you thank you so much for coming on it's been it's been super interesting um if people want to like uh chat with you connect with you work with you how can they find you yeah a hundred percent um they can find me on linkedin it's just my first and last name amanda branson um you can shoot me a dm you can book a call with me and we can have a, a casual chat just to see sort of what's going on in your business um, and I would love to see if there's a match there. If I can help you to improve the way you're doing your marketing, then it's it's a win-win. Awesome. I'll um I'll put all the links and everything in the uh in the description and um below the the post so people can find you. But yeah, thanks so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure, Amanda. Love it. Yes, my pleasure as well. All right, David. Good speaking with you.